everyone, good evening. Welcome back to Ground Waves. It's been a difficult week since we last gathered and it feels good to be together. It feels good to be in community. It feels good to be devoting tonight's Ground Wave session to bridging some of the gaps that so painfully strain our society, our communities. Now, a common refrain in Jewish discussions about diversity is the belief that all human beings are created in the image of the divine, something that we've mentioned many times. Honoring the uniqueness, the value and dignity of every individual is a show of respect for the manifold manifestations of divinity that's embedded within the human family. And as I've mentioned in other settings, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel expanded this core Jewish teaching when he said people 
aren't created in the image of God. People are the image of God. In his subtle but powerful shift, Rabbi Heschel sharpened the way we're meant to behold one another, not as reflections of holiness, but as holiness itself. To understand that each interaction I have with another human being, be it someone in my community or someone of another faith or ethnic community, be it with a close friend or a complete stranger, be it with a woman of power or a homeless destitute man, be it with someone with whom I share fundamental values or someone who espouses beliefs I find abhorrent. But to understand that in each and every one of those interactions with each and every one of those different people that I am interacting with God, that I am interacting with the source of life, with the Holy One that unites us all, that is what is meant to remind me of the awesome responsibilities and opportunities for healing and for redemption that I hold in my hands hundreds of moments every single day, including this one right now, just like you. Kavod habriot, the concept of the dignity of each and every human being is a core halachic or Jewish legal principle that over the course of millennia has led to numerous decisions, sometimes decisions that even overturned legal precedents if they impinged upon a person's dignity. This was the reasoning behind a widely celebrated rabbinic validation of sexual and gender diversity within the conservative movement. This is the thinking that paved the way for an ever expanding embrace of diversity within the wider Jewish community. It's the concept that grounded and continues to ground Jewish efforts to fight for and even die for civil rights in the United States and beyond. It's what inspires the spirit of radical inclusion in our own Sha'ar family. But the Jewish community to the Jewish commitment to honoring human diversity is rooted not only in what we know about the sanctity of each human life, it's also rooted in what we don't know. At the heart of the relationship between human beings and the divine is the concept of Brit, of covenantal partnership. In our sacred myths, the core expression of that relationship was sanctified between God and the Jewish people when the Torah was given and received on Mount Sinai. You might think that two partners in a sacred covenant would know each other fully and understand each other with a fair degree of clarity. Not so in our tradition, and for good reason. In one of the most dramatic moments of the biblical narrative, Moshe asks to see God's face, Haraini nat kvodecha. And God replies that Moshe cannot see God's face, Kilo aniha adam vachai, because no human being can see God's face and live. Sitting in the cleft of a rock, God passes before Moshe, and all Moshe can see is God's back. The prophet with the most intimate and the most direct connection to God can only ever see God's back. Rambam, Maimonides, who was a 12th century rabbinic authority, still revealed for his wisdom, which was shaped not only by Jewish sacred literature and practice, but also by Greek philosophy, science, and medieval Islamic religious and intellectual culture. Rambam uses this dramatic biblical scene to teach the Jewish tenet of theological humility. He likens Moshe's knowledge of God and consequently our own to the knowledge that we have, say, of our spouse or intimate friend. We know them so well, we think we can pick them out of any crowd. Rambam paints this picture of walking into the room and seeing your loved one from the back, recognizing them from the color of their hair or the shape of their body or the clothing that they're wearing. So you sidle up to them and you slip your hand into theirs, only to realize that it's not them. He uses this illustration to teach that despite how certain we are, of who or what God is and what it is, if God is, that God wants of us. All any of us really have are beliefs whose clarity is like the clarity of recognizing a loved one from behind. None of us have access to the face of God or to ultimate truth. The consequence of theological humility is our responsibility to live with awareness, not only of what we know, but of what we don't know living with humble recognition, not only of our own limitations, but also of the possibilities for wisdom and insight that exist within other people, other religions, other cultures. Our sacred texts 
which have been mined for thousands of years for their spiritual and moral wisdom, teach us that knowledge is created in part by what you know, but no less by your awareness of what you do not know. Salah Adin Maksud is a third generation Turkish American Muslim and lifelong resident of New Jersey. As a young activist, a student of the Islamic tradition, and a community leader, Salah Adin works to defend, educate, and empower American Muslims in New Jersey. Since 2019, Salah Adin has served as the executive director of CARE New Jersey, the Council on American Islamic Relations, America's largest civil rights and advocacy group. In his position as executive director, Salah Adin works to enhance the understanding of Islam, to encourage dialogue, protect civil liberties, empower American Muslims, and build coalitions that promote justice and mutual understanding. Prior to his time at CARE, Salah Adin helped establish the Muslim Network, a grassroots New Jersey-based Muslim umbrella organization that provides various services designed to build bridges between the Muslim communities in New Jersey. In 2017, Saladin received his bachelor's degree in religious studies from New York University. In 2019, he received his master's degree in Islamic studies from Columbia University, where his research focused on the intersection between Islamic political theory and Islamic mysticism or Sufism in the context of post-colonial studies. Saladin has traveled to Muslim majority countries like Egypt, Jordan, Turkey, and throughout the Balkans, for both his academic and his traditional studies of Islam and Muslim societies. He and I first met a short while ago when we were both featured speakers on a diversity, equity, and inclusion panel sponsored by the Public Library in Fort Lee, New Jersey. I heard him share about his work and his faith and immediately knew that I wanted to invite him onto Ground Waves as our guest, and I am thrilled that he accepted my invitation. And so here we are. Shalom Aleichem. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome, Sil Adin. We're so honored to have you. Wa alaikum salam, and I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. So, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background, about the work that you do at Care New Jersey. What some of the priorities are for the organization at this time? Absolutely. Well, first of all, alhamdulillah, all praise is due to God, and we seek His refuge and His help and His forgiveness. And I send my peace and blessings upon this beautiful gathering and upon all of those that are listening in tonight. Um, thank you so much for having me. It really is exciting and it really is an honor to be here. Um, so a little bit about my background, as you mentioned, um, born and raised here in New Jersey, um, a little bit of studying for the Islamic tradition, both academically um, and traditionally. Um, and then after my academic studies, I made my way onto uh, the CARE New Jersey team uh, where we fight uh, for civil liberties and civil rights for Muslims here in New Jersey. Um, some of the most pressing priorities that our care organization is dealing with at the moment, I guess you could say, uh, at a national level, right now we are focused primarily on gearing up for the next, uh, the next four years uh, with President Joe Biden. 
and trying to understand what, what role will American Muslims play in this presidency. Um, and one of the things we're hoping to do is continue a conversation with his administration in hopes that he fulfills some of the promises that he has made to the community. Uh, at the top of that list is probably ending the Muslim ban, um, the long uh, and very infamous Muslim ban that has separated many families, unfortunately. So that's really um, one of the things that our organization is working towards fulfilling at a national level. At a local level, of course, the fight continues um, in getting our community to be engaged um, civically, um, socially, interfaith work, uh, just participating in the civic process, beyond voting, just being a part of uh, the community through uh, engagement and events like this. Um, so, yeah. Will those efforts be focused on um, leaders in the community or also trying to engage the lay community in opportunities to be in conversation with or build partnerships with the lay communities of other faith and cultural organizations? Absolutely. And in many ways, our organization acts as a kind of a third party platform where we bring community leaders from all walks of life, not just political leaders, but religious leaders, social leaders, activists, scholars, um, and put them in conversation with the lay people, the community, uh, various other, both Muslim, non-Muslim community mm -hmm. members, um, and providing that channel of communication, providing a channel of opportunity for conversation. Um, a lot of our work um, is about education as well. So not mm -hmm. only do we have legal defense uh, for those that are harassed or discriminated against on the basis of race or religion, we also do a lot of educational work, workshops, seminars, trainings, um, partnerships where we provide educational opportunities, whether it be on Islam, civil rights, know your rights programs, um, Ramadan 101 workshops, uh, you name it, uh, we offer various educational programming. That's fantastic and so needed right now. Um, and certainly the benefits of that kind of work will accrue not only for your community, but for all of our communities, the more we're able to be in conversation with each other. And I, I, I you know, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I really hope tonight is the beginning of one such relationship that we can build together. Saladin, tell us how the pandemic has affected Muslim communities in particular in terms of religious gatherings or the impact on families, isolation between communities? Um, like every community, it's been very difficult. Um, and I can remember like it was yesterday uh, when it first hit in March of 2020. And I remember following online the list of mosques that were closing for the Friday prayer. And to me, I was, my jaw dropped because I have never seen such a thing before. For the mosque to close for Friday prayer, the one time in the week where Muslims gather to be together, to pray, to worship, to uh, socialize, is shutting down across the state. I thought this is unprecedented. Um, so it was, that's when it really hit the, the severity of the pandemic. And then immediately after, the month following in, um, in April was actually the holy month of Ramadan. And we were just thrown into this pandemic and thrown into Ramadan, and now we could not gather. And Ramadan, for anyone that knows anything about Ramadan, is all about gathering in community and sharing meals, breaking the fast together. So it was very difficult to separate everyone and tell them to stay at home um, in the holiest month of the Islamic calendar. Um, so, and community is an essential attribute of the Islamic tradition. Uh, so much of the practices and the rituals and the, uh, and the opportunities to worship are based on community and based on gathering and socializing. But at the same time, we've learned to also value um, solitude. And while community is very important and gathering is very important and Muslims definitely missed out, as everyone else did, missed out on the gatherings, we've come to also realize, and it's always been a longstanding part of the tradition, that solitude and isolation does play a pivotal role in the formation of the self, if you will, the formation of a, a devotee or you know, one that follows or observes and worships, right? 
there's actually an Arabic word, um, halwa, and I don't want to jump a gun because I know we're going to be speaking about Sufism earlier, uh, later on, um, but halwa is a term that's used to describe solitude, right? Isolation, taking yourself and removing yourself from the world around you and the hustle and bustle of the temporal world and excluding yourself in order that you can better understand your existence in relationship with the divine. Um, so that practice is an opportunity, you know, we spent in 2020 to, you know, stay at home um, in isolation, in quarantine, to work on ourselves, uh, to perfect our character, to um, become a better Muslim, to become a better person, right? Um, so there's a balance, there's community as an aspect of the tradition, but so is isolation, so is quarantining and um, working on the individual. Um, so yeah, 2020 has been, like for everyone, um, insane in many ways, but um, also opportunities to flourish and grow, um, both for, uh, in the faith and of course, uh, in other matters of life. That's such a beautiful way of framing this time as not just burden, burden but also um, not outright blessing, but an opportunity to seek blessing even from, from these hardships. And again, as we said before, you know, for, for more and more people to use this time for introspection and right. to understand their place in the world and their responsibilities in the world, you know, that will go a long way towards the world that we need to be joining to rebuild when, uh, when we can come back together. So along those lines, how has the American Islamic community experienced the intensified conversation around race and diversity in the United States? The terrifyingly violent violations of civil rights that we observed of black people uh, at the hands of police brutality, the protests, the demands for justice, the assault on our Capitol last week. Um, what, what has been the experience of your community? Absolutely. I think the conversations that are being had right now internally in the Muslim community are twofold, right? It's the outright condemnation of police brutality, right? And state violence, um, whether it be state violence at a local level or at a national level or even abroad. Um, all of which are in many ways connected. So it's condemning violence, but also recognizing that that violence stemming from racism, right? In many ways, that racism also exists in our own communities, even though we don't like to admit it, right? And of course, the Islamic tradition, you know, teaches against, you know, teaches us to combat racism. Muslims themselves are still human beings at the end of the day, right? So we, of course, like anyone, are susceptible to um, the sin of racism, right? So the conversation has, is being had internally, right? Within the mosques, within the, you know, the halakata, the circles of you know, knowledge, and those are seeking um, knowledge. How can we become better Muslims? How can we combat racism? How can we combat xenophobia? Um, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, all of the various forms of uh, biases and bigotries. Um, and what does, our, what does our tradition teach us about these things, right? And I mean, the, the um, narrations of the prophet and the Quranic verses are, there are so many that can, be, uh, that can address these issues. And you know, one very famous one that I, you know, I love to share with people that I think is, you know, plays a pivotal role in the conversation of uh, issues of race uh, when it comes to Islamic tradition it is the very famous one that the prophet once famously said, uh, a Arab is no better than a non-Arab and a non-Arab is no better than an Arab. And then he continued and said, a black man is no better than a white man and a white man is no better than a um, black man or and oftentimes the translations might say superior. So a black man is not superior than a white man and a white man is not superior than a black man. Um, it's, it doesn't get any more clearer than that. It, there's just no gray area there. It's black and white, you know, quite and right. So their racism is explicitly prohibited, right? And in many cases, you know, we say that racism is actually uh, an insult to God before it is an insult to human beings, right? Because why? Because 
God, Allah, you know, he created humanity. And he says in the Quran that he created humanity in various nations and tribes so that they may come to know one another, so that they may come to learn from one another, right? So we have various traditions, ethnicities, and languages. This was a purposeful aspect of his creation, right? This was what he did. And you mentioned that in the beginning, right? Um, so this is his creation. And for his creation to have some sort of a hatred uh, towards that creation is an insult to the creator, right? So racism, there is simply obvious, of course, is no room for that in the Islamic tradition. And Muslims are working very hard in New Jersey, at least, to figure out ways to combat racism in our own communities, right? So diversifying the mosque um, boards, for example, a lot of the mosques in New Jersey, they have boards, trustees, et cetera. How do we be more inclusive, right? How do we get the communities to um, uh, collaborate and work together? You know, a lot of my work at CARE is to encourage mosques to build partnerships with BLM chapters, for example. Um, the Black Lives Matter chapters in Patterson or elsewhere throughout the state, um, welcoming them as guest speakers, um, whether it be on Friday prayer or other times throughout the week, um, of course, virtually now. Um, so really encouraging mosque leaders to participate in these conversations um, and take tangible steps to address the issues within our own community. Um, again, representation. As a matter of fact, 20% of the American Muslim community is African-American. 20%, it's a larger number than most people realize. Um, you know, many people would think when they think Muslim, they think Arab. But as a matter of fact, the community is very diverse. I myself am Turkish, right? Um, so recognizing that our community is diverse in language and skin color and ethnicity and in understanding of the tradition and acknowledging that and making room for everyone. Um, that has been a, a big part of what I do um, what we're doing at CARE, you know, intentional efforts to addressing these issues. Um, you, you know, many, many have noted the parallels, the similarities uh, between Judaism and Islam, the many things that we share. And you've just highlighted another, Saladin. When we face painful times, such as the one that we're in right now, the instinct to look beyond ourselves and raise our voices in protest against injustices that occur, but to also take the time to look deep within ourselves and to make sure that we are part of the solutions to the world's problems and not part of the problems themselves. I'm very, very taken with that dynamic that you just described and uh, it's, it's, it's so important. And I have a lot of respect for that dual commitment that you that you speak about. Okay, so now I want to ask you a little bit about your studies because I was so interested when we spoke. You mentioned that your studies focused on this intersection of Islamic law and and mysticism. So, what exactly intrigued you to explore that connection? And is there something about contemporary Muslim life? that sort of motivated you to look for that relationship in particular. You also, when we spoke, mentioned a little bit about your grandfather in Turkey. So I'm hoping you'll share a little bit more about that now too. Yeah, um, absolutely. I can talk for hours on end about uh, these questions and um, my own studies in particular. Um, so thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with you about them. Um, so what, where, <clears throat> I guess growing up, there was a tension, right, um, that I kind of observed and I also felt. And uh, that tension really came to fruition and really became obvious to me um, when I began traveling overseas with my grandparents um, and specifically in Turkey and in the Balkans. Um, but before my travels, and this was when I was very young, um, I guess you could say middle school or high school, um, first I noticed at, back here in the States um, the general, generally speaking, the articulation of the Islamic tradition was very hyper-legal in that it obsessed, and the people rather, the people, again, this is people, not the tradition itself. The people, generally speaking, obsessed over binaries like halal or halal or uh, permissible 
versus haram or forbidden, right? So black and whites, you know, everything is, yes, you can do this. No, you can't do that. It's just, this, this, there's no gray area and uh, there's no thought process behind it. It's just yes or no, good or bad, haram, halal, you know, these things. And it was very dominant in many, um, in much of, you know, Muslim life, at least from my experiences here in the States. Um, but then as I grew older and I began traveling more uh, throughout Muslim countries and whatnot, a particular experience that really made me start to question a lot of what I had thought was Islam was a specific experience that I had with my grandfather while we were um, actually in Macedonia. And again, we have family in Turkey as well, um, but this specific situation or story rather was in Macedonia where we, my grandfather, um, kind of quietly threw me into a, a little gathering, at a Sufi lodge, right? So uh, Sufism or the, the Sufi or the, the mystic tradition of Islam um, kind of said, you should go to this gathering. And I said, what is this gathering? And I, was like, I didn't know much about it. And he goes, just go, you'll see, you'll see. And he actually left, he left me behind by myself. And I was like, why are you leaving me? <laughs> um, and uh, so nonetheless, long story short, I sat in this gathering against a Sufi lodge. So it's like a mosque. Um, but specifically geared towards accommodating those that um, are more sympathetic to the mystic tradition, right? So this gathering was after Friday prayer. The typical Friday prayer was concluded, and then immediately after began a meditation session, right? And the meditation uh, session involved various practices and rituals like chanting and, um, and singing and um, you know, various kind of hymns, if you will, um, in both Arabic and in Turkish. Um, along with recitation of the Quran and various other, you know, kind of attributes and characteristics and, you know, quieter moments of, you know, um, solitude. Um, and this was the first time I ever experienced something like this before. And I was like, this is, this is, to myself, I'm thinking this is Islam because back home, I was never taught of any of this. I was taught five daily prayers, fasting during Ramadan, going to Hajj once in your life. And then that is, that is it. That's Islam. But in actuality, there are other forms of, you know, practice of meditation, um, worship, uh, you know, other ways in which you can engage the tradition, right? And nonetheless, I left and I spoke to my grandfather and said, why did you leave me in this room? What, what was this experience? I thought it was very interesting. Long story short, I went home, I read about it, and I began to realize that the Islamic tradition is vast, right? And like many religions, it has an aspect of mysticism. Um, and I began to read and study and study and study and going down all these rabbit holes and picking up new, um, new uh, I guess, traditional uh, sources of knowledge um, and books and realizing that Sufism or in Arabic, tasawwuf, right, um, is a big part of the Islamic tradition. And it focused primarily on perfecting the self. Um, so that's when I realized that, okay, there is a legal tradition right that is important and we shouldn't neglect and it is there right and it talks about what's halal and haram forbidden and permissible there's also a really important aspect of islam that's often forgotten about and that is about the um nurturing the self right and nurturing the the soul rather i should say and developing a personal connection with the divine and that is kind of the essence of sufism right and the objective oftentimes is becoming a better person. It's just as simple as that, really. It's perfecting your character, perfecting your being, um, aligning yourself with the will of, with, of God, right? So in many ways, it's the law and it's the spirit of the law, you can say. And it's important that they have a conversation between the two. And that's when I began to realize that, okay, Islam is much more robust and much more rich than what some people might present it to be. That was like maybe a long drawn out answer to your question. I don't know if I, I hope I know it's, it, it, it's fascinating. You know, in the Jewish community, we have a, a similar trend. Some people refer to it as neo-Hasidism, mm -hmm. essentially a, a renewed modern progressive approach to bridging the spiritual passion and contemplative practices of the religiously conservative Hasidic tradition with a sort of more inclusive, perhaps liberal commitment to issues of justice, equality, yeah. self-actualization um, within and beyond the Jewish community, a, a, a movement that also pushes against the binaries of 
what's in or out, permitted or forbidden in, in Hebrew, we would say uh, mutar or asur, in order to create this more fluid expression of religiosity, uh, a movement that roots the healing of the world in the healing of the human heart, a movement that brings issues of mental health into the realm of spiritual health. And these trends are challenging and enhancing and reshaping communities across the Jewish landscape. How are these trends shaping the Muslim community today? Are they, are they more sort of, um, uh, are they attracting more of the younger Muslim generations? As a third generation Muslim yourself here in the United States, has your tradition changed over the course of your own lifetime in terms of practice? Do you, do you see Muslim spirituality continuing to change in the decades ahead? Amazing questions and ones that um, would probably need a segment, a segment on their own. Um, and yet the answer briefly, yes. Um, I think what, as I've grown older, um, what I've noticed more and more now is that a lot of these, um, a lot of what you described, by the way, is also realized in the Muslim community as well. So the similarities and the parallels are there, which is very fascinating to see. Yeah. Um, so that is beautiful. And yes, um, it is, I would say, becoming much more, um, I want to say, normalized and accepted. And the uh, and it is and you can see it even in the kind of the lexicon or the uh, the, the um, terminology in which Muslims are using. They are using more and more terms that um, are adopted from the Sufi tradition. Right. Um, so I would say that. Uh, it is the younger generation, I guess you could say the millennial generation, but even the one prior, and forgive me, I don't know the, which generation that was, whether it was X or Z, I, I don't know the order, so my apologies. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yes, um, it is becoming much more normalized, um, and um, it is now combating a lot of the binaries that existed prior, right? Um, the obsessive hyper-legal approach. Um, and in times like this, and again, going back to the conversation of the quarantine, in times like this, when we're forced to stay at home and be on, in, with ourselves, right? And wrestle with the reality around us, right? We have no other choice but to address it, right? Um, it's a perfect opportunity to introspect, to look within, to reflect, to um, be critical and have also a deep sense of awareness of the world around us, right? These conversations are not being had by legalists and, and Islamic, you know, quote unquote lawyers or, you know, those that are looking at, you know, the, the key of the law, et cetera, et cetera. These conversations of richness and internal dialogue are being had by the quote unquote mystics, right? And I have always urged for a conversation between the two, right? Mm. Again, both are important, but let's not forget about um, the importance of perfecting the heart, for example, right? Mm -hmm. um, the primary science uh, that is often referred to in, in, in this aspect is in Arabic, it's called tul nafs, tul nafs, or the purification um, of the heart or the self, to purify oneself, right? And that's a journey. That doesn't, you don't just, okay, I purified my heart and now I'm going to move on. It doesn't work that way, right? It's an ongoing conversation you have with yourself with God, with mentors, um, and the mentee you might have together. You know, the apprentice usually has a teacher that teaches him, right? Mm. So you look for a spiritual advisor, look for a spiritual mentor that you might ask to diagnose your heart, right? Mm. Because we have doctors that can give us, you know, various medications to fight COVID or vaccines and whatnot, and that's great for your temporal body, but how about your spiritual soul? It also needs to be diagnosed and you need to find the ills of the heart, right? And root those out. And what medication can the spiritual mentor offer uh, the, the devotee, the one that follows, the disciple, right? And a lot of these conversations are being had in Sufi circles. Um, and times like this, solitude and quarantine are prime opportunities to, again, reflect internally. Um, yeah. Sladin, the work you're doing the, the vision you're articulating is, is all so compelling, so important. And I'm so glad that you came to be with us tonight, give us a chance to understand more of what's engaging your community right now, the way in which you are trying to make use of this time 
that we're facing. And I, I wish you so much strength and continued courage for the work that lies ahead for you and for all of us. And I really hope that we'll be able to share in much of that and look forward to speaking with you um, beyond tonight and certainly bringing you back to our community, meeting members of your community and finding our pathways both deep within and forward together. Um, I wish you continued health and safety for you and your community. And, uh, and I wish you peace. Shalom, salam. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Um, likewise, this was really a pleasure. And I always emphasize this, you know, opportunities like this are so important and we should not underestimate the importance of channels of communication. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with your community and yourself. Um, it really was an honor. Um, and may the peace and blessings be with you as well. Thank you. Done. Yeah, I'll play a bit of a melody from the Turkish Sufi tradition, actually. Um, and this was adapted by a Jewish community um, there and uh, here in the U.S. too. So some, some of you may know the melody. Here we, we chanted two very simple words. Um, how good it is when uh, brothers and sisters can sit together.
this feels like an important time to share, perhaps for some of you, um, a repeat, but hopefully for, for some of you the first time that you'll hear a story of how while living in Jerusalem in 1985 and studying at the Hebrew University on Mount Scopus, I used to climb to the rooftop of my dormitory to Devon to pray in the mornings. I liked it up there because I could enjoy a gorgeous vista that spanned West and East Jerusalem and even a glimpse in the direction of the Judean desert. One morning, just as I was reciting the Amidah, the centerpiece of our daily liturgy, the Muezzin in East Jerusalem began to call Muslims to prayer. And at the very same moment, the church bells from the Mormon church on Mount Scopus began to ring. The universe was telling me something that I hadn't yet learned in spite of my Orthodox upbringing and schooling. A lesson that led me to my first job at the National Conference of Christians and Jews, now referred to as the National uh, Conference of Community and Justice. The lesson being that we are all simply, and for the most part, nobly, struggling to live lives of meaning and of purpose and of connection to that which we believe is greater than us, and to infuse our lives with the values and to infuse our lives with the righteousness and loving kindness that we know we have the capacity for, and to do so for our children in our communities. I continue to push myself to believe without naivete, without delusion, that in spite of the pain that we human beings cause each other, we have the capacity to bend the arc towards goodness and towards love. And that when we hurt each other, we do so out of pain and insecurity, which does not make any action okay, but hopefully will open up some pathways towards better understanding and towards healing. When my oldest son, Jonathan, um, was seven years old, he's now almost 27, and we were flying to a cousin's bat mitzvah in Toronto, after I said tefillat haderach, the traveler's prayer, he turned to me and he asked, Mom, is God Christian or is God Jewish? And after a brief panic about how I was going to answer that one, I had the closest thing to, in my life, um, what might be called an epiphany. This is what I said to him, and this is what I have taught all my children. This is what I teach my students. This is what I preach to those who honor me by calling me their rabbi. And this is what I repeat every chance that I get. God is not Christian, and God is not Jewish, and God is not Muslim. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, all the other religions are ways that people try to get close to God, to the source of life, to the Holy One, or to that which they believe brings meaning to their lives. It is more than a theological statement. It is a principle by which I have built my community and forged relationships with other leaders. It's what brought Sha'ar together with Central Unitarian Church and Peace Islands Institute to share annual iftar dinners, to process significant events in the life of our nation, to mark moments of thanksgiving, to work together to bring healing and justice to those in pain. It's what informed Sha'ar's practice of bringing young B'nai Mitzvah students to spend time in churches and mosques and other settings so that they understand how to embrace their emerging Jewish responsibilities and privileges in a world that we share with those who are different from us. It's what guides us to be in deep fellowship with others, not only out of kindness, but out of seeking to make whole our partial truth, a wholeness which can only emerge in partnership with all other partial truths out there. This dialectic of living our Jewish identities with pride and passion, even as we honor the multifaceted, diverse truths of human life, is captured in a poignant teaching by the Kutzke Rebbe, a great Hasidic teacher, who said that a person should walk through the world with one piece of paper in each pocket, on one being the words, Bishfilili vraha ulam, for me the world was created, and on the other, Anochi afar ve'efer, I am simply dust and ashes. Seeking balance between those two different understandings is our Jewish way. Living with the fullness of a broken heart, another Kutzka image, carrying the world's pain and suffering even as we rejoice in life's beauty, that is how we try to proceed. Of the 613 commandments, mitzvot, sacred instructions contained within the Torah, all but two are situational, meaning if the opportunity arises to fulfill them, we're obligated to fulfill them. If it's Friday night, we observe Shabbat. If we see someone needy, we give them help. But there are two mitzvot that we are taught we have to create the opportunities to fulfill and not wait for the circumstances to arise. One is bakesh shalom v'radfehu, 
Seek peace and pursue it. We have to always be working to make peace between enemies, working to bridge the distance that keeps people and communities and cultures apart, never waiting for the right moment to step in, but creating, chasing down moments like that, like this one. The second is tzedek tzedek tirdof, justice, justice, you shall pursue. We're not permitted to rest and to wait for justice to arise or even for the opportunity to create justice to arise. We have to open our eyes, open our hearts to the inequities that continue to plague our world, whether they affect us directly or anyone else with whom we share this world. And we have to engage directly and continuously with the work of justice and freedom. At Sinai, where according to our sacred myths, these sacred institutions took shape, there were over 600,000 Israelites and others who joined us standing at the foot of the mountain, this other multitude who had joined us in the Exodus. Any scenario which brings together a similar gathering is one in which a special blessing is recited, a blessing that acknowledges the breadth and diversity of the Jewish people and more expansively, the breadth and the depth of humanity. This blessing refers to the Holy One as Chacham HaRazim, the knower of secrets. It's the bracha that we make over pluralism, over the discrete sources of knowledge, understanding and experience that keep us unknowable fully to one another, but make us, if we look hard enough, infinitely recognizable to one another. It's the blessing that we make when we are overwhelmed by the richness and diversity that animates our communities, our societies, our countries. What's at stake at this particular moment in American and human history, wherein we live not just in the marketplace of ideas, but in the marketplace of identities, in a world where hierarchies of all kinds have given way to a flat network landscape that is all about access, a world no longer defined by either or, but by yes and. At a time when the walls that have divided us have become ever more porous, even as some keep threatening to rebuild them. What is at stake is more than any of our own particular fates. We are each one urgent piece of a universal human crossroads. As Jeremy Rifkin suggests in his book, The Empathic Civilization, our ability to deepen spiritual and moral consciousness in a world of increasing connectivity signals the possibility of extending our empathic embrace to all forms of life and to the planet itself. The consequences of any of our traditions failing to reimagine themselves will be devastating. The consequences of humanity's unwillingness to do the same could be more catastrophic creating a sustainable, open-sourced, non-hierarchical, collaborative community is part of today's global urgency to create a similarly sustainable planet. Baruch Chacham Harazim. Blessed be the wise one of secrets, of the mysteries that keep us curious about and interested in one another, that bring us together to jointly and respectfully unfold our treasures that will reweave the shared fabric of our human lives and heal our still so tragically broken world. I'll play a short rendition of a song from uh, Morocco. It's a very traditional folk song. It's called uh, Bint Bladi, uh, the, the girl of my village, the girl from my village. Um, but Moroccan Jewish uh, communities adapted it to the poetry of Igdal, which is uh, sung on, uh, often at the end of Kabbalat Shabbat, and uh, which exalts um, God and uh, God's qualities, and uh, it's also a very mysterious poem. So it's a, it's a gorgeous melody. <laughs> Thank you. 
That was beautiful. So beautiful. Friends, next week on Ground Waves, we're going to be welcoming Rabbi Sandra Lawson, who's the Associate Chaplain for Jewish Life at Elon University. In 2018, she became the first openly gay female black rabbi in the world. This coming week, um, on Wednesday, two nights from now, on January 13th, our Justice Bait Midrash continues with... Um, the conversation on race and racism. This coming weekend, Martin Luther King weekend, Shar continues our partnership with the JCC on the Upper West Side um, and continues with um, a co-sponsorship of their program, Cinematters, the New York Social Justice Film Festival, which will illuminate themes and topics of social change through uh, movies and conversation. Please see our email, um, the most recent one went out this morning, for links to the film uh, schedule, for talks and other events relating to the festival, as well as a link for discounted tickets for participants from Sha'ar. I invite you to save the date, January 27th through the 31st, for the Great Big Jewish Climate Festival with um, communities, individuals from all over the world who will be joining for five days of programs, learning, action, events, speakers, podcasts, all kinds of fantastic opportunities to build a growing Jewish presence in the movement to address climate change. I'll be honored to be participating in partnership with Rabbi Seth Goldstein um, on a podcast on a platform called Evolve. Um, where we will be discussing um, green approaches to death and burial. I know it may sound a little macabre, but it's actually fascinating. And I invite you to tune in. I believe our session is going to be on Friday, January 29th at 1 p.m. But um, you'll see on our email as well links to the Climate Festival website where you can find out uh, all of the related information. Sha'ar is also looking for participants in a pilot program um, of Dayenu, the Jewish Movement for Climate Activism, um, a program on spiritual adaptation. We're looking for uh, 12 people to join us for two 90-minute sessions on two upcoming Sunday afternoons, February 7th and March 7th, where Dayenu facilitators will help us um, process the personal and spiritual questions and concerns that many have um, with the looming threat 
of our planet's demise. It should be a very important, very powerful opportunity for intimate discussion and fellowship around these issues. February 21st, Sha'ar's uh, Purim Bash. Um, Debbie, are we allowed to release? Did the, did the name go out of the, of the, the party? No, but you can divulge it. It's fine. Go ahead. You say it. I'm going to fumble. The Sha'ar Shushan. Royal uh, Flush. Royal, thank you. <laughs> That's your favorite part. <laughs> it's going to be a fantastic, fantastic night with a lot of fun, a lot of laughs, a fantastic poker tournament, lots of other things for people to do who don't play poker like me. Um, and just there might watch be some music. Some phenomenal music by our in-house uh Lisa Kasdan's band, right? Our in-house yep. band. Uh, some divas. Oh, of course. And the Purim divas. That would be, yes, we, we, we'll let people come in and experience that that night. Um, if you are uh, new to uh, Ground Waves, new to Shar, we're so happy you're here with us tonight. Please put your email in the chat so that we can include you in our email distribution list. Um, for those of you who might be looking to view previous sessions of Ground Waves, um, you will be able to do so by clicking on the Ground Waves page on our website. And I am also thrilled to announce, thanks to the help of Daniel Lerner, that Ground Waves is actually now available on Spotify as a podcast. So um, you can get Ground Waves any way that you want it. And we are just so proud to be sharing um, all of this wonderful content that we've generated together. As always, we invite you to... Um, Stay on for a few minutes after our formal program ends in just a moment. Have a chance to say hello, check in with each other. We always close our program with a final prayer, kavanah, intention, and I am so honored tonight to invite Salah Adin to lead us in our closing moment. Thank you, Rabbi. Um, <clears throat> so uh, in line with the conversation uh, we had tonight on the topic of Sufism, uh, I thought it would make sense to read a very short, short poem from the very famous Maulana Jalaluddin Rumi. Um, Rumi is very popular uh, in the West, so allow me to read a very short poem from him, and then I'll read a very, very short Quranic verse. Um, so that the poem is titled, I Swear. Of course, I'm reading the English translation because I can't read Farsi. <laughs> I swear, he writes, since seeing your face, the whole world is fraud and fantasy. The garden is bewildered as to what is a leaf or a blossom. The distracted birds can't distinguish the bird seed from the snare. A house of love with no limits. A presence more beautiful than Venus or the moon. A beauty whose image fills the mirror of the heart. When I think of this poem, I often think about the importance of like allowing yourself to be in awe of the world around you um, as a way to prevent our hearts from hardening and becoming dark. I, we always believe that it is important to allow ourselves to be in awe of the creation of God and allowing ourselves to be humble um, in his presence of him and his creation. And then finally, I'll and with this very short chronic verse, um, Surah Asr or chapter Asr, um, Bismillah Rahman Rahim, Well Asr, In al Insan Lafi Husr, Illa Ladina Aminu, Waminu Salihat, Watawasaubil Hak, Watawasaubil Sabr. It is translated as In the name of God, the most gracious, the most merciful, by the passage of time. God swears, by the passage of time, surely humanity is in grave loss, except, except those who have faith, do righteous deeds, and urge one another to truth, and urge and advise each other to patience and perseverance. With that, thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings and mercy of God be upon you all. Thank you so much. Thank you, Saladin. I know we'll see you again soon. Stay well. Peace to you and your community.
Ayla Tov, everyone. Stay safe, stay healthy. I miss you all so much. Thank you, Dan.